concept for EPAR trade is basically, in my opinion, there's a big hole in the internet. So the internet started many years ago, but there's never been an online business community for racers on the World Wide Web. The need for EPAR trade is actually quite obvious. Basically, people in the business of auto racing need a place online to hang out and get their problems solved. It's extremely simple for a buyer or for a supplier to interact on the platform. The first thing you need to do is sign in, which is free. And the second thing is when you see a product that you're interested in, all you need to do is click on request more information. If it's a company, you click on request more information. And then from there, it is forwarded directly to the buyer or to the supplier. You can go to epartrade.com, you become part of a community of businesses in racing and it makes uh, sourcing products much easier than just on the internet or using Google. At epartrade there is no e-commerce, it's literally a connection just like at a trade show. So now, any time of the year, a buyer could reach out to a supplier through an email. More than that, it's a place to go just to keep current every day. So it's a good place to start your workday in your racing business or in your offices of your professional race team. And you know you're current when it comes to new technology, industry news, technical papers, technical videos, all that and more. We're not looking for a million hits per day. All we want is people who are really the volume buyers of racing products in the racing industry to be part of the little world of EPAR trade. We have racing businesses participating from around the world. So you get suppliers from around the world, you get buyers from around the world. EPAR trade really eliminates having to travel, closing down your shop. Now you have a place to showcase globally your racing product and technology. Good morning and welcome to Race Industry Now, the technical and business webinar series from EPAR Trade. I am Francisque Savignan, the founder and CEO, and with me this morning is Judy King. Good morning, Judy. Good morning, Francisque and Brad and everyone. Good morning, Brad. How are you? I'm fantastic. I hope you're doing well also. Absolutely. So this is episode 108, and uh, we are going to bring back the gentleman from Food Damper and uh, somebody else, Judy, right? Yes, yes, we have Greg with Inland Empire Driveline Service. But you know, Francis, it's been a great week already because we've had new suppliers jump on board. I'm sure everybody's heard about Cosworth. They confirmed. I've had some other companies, Andrews Cams and Bill Patterson Artwork that does commissioned artwork. So there's so many new products and services on board. Uh, absolutely. And I, I mean, Cosworth, I've worked with them for many, many, many years. And I was delighted to bring them back on the platform. Big, you know, huge uh, name in the industry or worldwide company, uh, everything coming out of the UK. And so, yes, we'll, uh, we'll do a webinar with them pretty soon too. So uh, as uh, uh, we're talking, I see a signal from uh, uh, our producer, Reed Keneski. I see Greg uh, from Inland coming on board. I think we should be seeing Brian and Aaron pretty soon. So good morning. I think Greg is here. Aaron, Brian, very good. Excellent. Good morning, Greg. Good morning. How are you? Very good. Hello, Brian. Good morning. Good morning, Francis. How are you doing today? Very good, Aaron. Welcome back. Good morning. So, Mr. Brad Gilly will let you take over for the next hour. So we're going to uh, uh, be back in about an hour. So have a great uh, webinar and we'll talk to you guys soon.
Thank you very much, Francis. Really appreciate that. Uh, really looking forward to this next hour as well. Uh, today's uh, title, Vibration Control, Engine and Drive Shaft by Inland, uh, Inland Empire Driveline and Fluid Damper. And joining us here, Greg Frick, the president of Inland Empire Driveline Service, Brian LeBaron, marketing manager, Fluid Damper, and Aaron Nyman, the Vibration Solutions Manager, Vibratech TVD. And um, if you're new to the format, what we do is we're basically going to spend the next hour talking about our topic of the day and uh, a lot of different things that would certainly interest you uh, as racers. And as always, if you have any questions along the way, please feel free to type those into the chat and we'll get those questions asked uh, in the order that they come. And certainly if we're on topic as well. And if you have a question specific to one of our panelists, please address them as such to make sure we get that. And uh, gentlemen, I just want to say hello to each one of you individually, first of all. Uh, Greg, we'll start with you. If you would kind of give us an overview of some of the things that we're going to be talking about here today. The uh, drive shaft and the crankshaft obey the same physics, and that's why we are together on this presentation. Uh, I'll be talking about those things that irritate drive shafts, and we'll follow uh, fluid damper, who is going to tell us what's going on with the crankshaft. And and Brian, um, I know you're uh, familiar to uh, our race industry now episodes and everything that we do. So uh, kind of give us an overview of fluid damper and, and some of the things that you have on deck for us. Well, uh, good morning, Brad. Again, my name is Brian LeBaron, uh, marketing manager here at Fluid Damper. It's great to be back on the program. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about vibration control. But really, why is it? Why do we talk about this? It's for durability. We want to get to the finish line. And if we're not talking about race cars, think about the, um, the comfort and durability building into your tow rigs, uh, where you have a comfortable ride going down the road to the track. So fluid damper, well known in the industry for performance harmonic dampers. Uh, so we're gonna be talking about how those work, but also why you need it, the dynamics of vibration happening at the crankshaft. Uh, on board with me today is Aaron Nyman. He's the vibration solutions manager for Vibratech TVD. Vibratech TVD is the parent company to Fluid Damper, and they get into all sorts of vibration and analysis on the, uh, the, the crankshaft, uh, the driveline, camshafts, and, uh, and a whole host of industries outside of racing. So it brings a big, broad, uh, broad perspective. Well, Aaron, welcome to you as well. And uh, with some of the things that you work on and the solutions that you come up with as well, uh, you know, what are some things that people typically run into? What are some of the things that you have to solve, if you will? So some of the things that we run into uh, from a solutions package standpoint, um, you, you come up with uh, you know a vibration control for the damper itself, um, but and then that covers the engine, and then you come up with a vibration solution for a drive package, and then you come up with a vibration you know a solution for the rear axle. But when you bring everything together, sometimes uh, you know you get people that if you're not an OEM car builder. Uh, you bring in all these different packages together that are good as, a, as separate components, but when you bring them together as a system, you get some vibration issues. Uh, and that's why you know, we just, you know, we're working on this today with, uh, with Greg from Inland Empire to talk about how the different systems come together and interact uh, and how you know, sometimes parts that are good vibration-wise, uh, you know, when they come together, you can have interactions that cause uh, noise issues or possibly durability issues and how um, how what, what are some ways you can approach fixing these solutions from a driveline standpoint and also some ways you can fix these solutions from a vibration damper standpoint. 
Well, thank you. Well, Greg, um, let's let you talk here for a minute. You know, the last thing that anybody wants is to uh, either not complete a quarter mile run, get stuck out in the desert somewhere, stopped on the racetrack because they simply can't move forward uh, because they've had some drive shaft or driveline issues. So give us an idea of what you do at Inland Empire Driveline Service, if you would. Well, uh, I'm pretty much the outside guy running around uh, doing things like this. Uh, but we uh, build drive shafts for everything from steel mills to uh, rock crawlers. And all of them are subject to the same issues and forces. Uh, so we can, it's our job or the job of any drive shaft designer to put the vibration issues someplace where the vehicle owner doesn't go. So for instance, if you've got a Camaro that'll go 180 miles an hour, we can get it calmed down to about 120. And after that, it's carbon fiber shaft time. So there's all kinds of different solutions depending on uh, what, uh, what the car is doing to the owner at the time. Wow, that's interesting. You know, when it comes to drive shafts, and you're talking about rock crawlers and different things like that, as people are changing geometry of suspensions and all of that, obviously that changes the length and all of that. How long can a single piece drive shaft be made? That has been an ongoing issue for a very, very long time. Uh, currently, OEMs are out to about 72 inches in pickup trucks and Suburbans and the like. Uh, but they're using five inch diameter tube to do it. Uh, in those cases, if you fiddle around with the wheel diameter or put a chip in your Tahoe or, or uh, uh, put a couple of uh, turbos on it, you can all of a sudden find yourself into a physics problem that will drive you mad. And, you know, when it comes to driving you mad, I know you guys offer a variety of products, not just the drive shaft itself and uh, have an amazingly incredible 48 hour turnaround service as well. Uh, but if someone just thinks, hey, I have this vibration here, I need this fix. That's not always the answer, is it? Just what they think they might need because of so many different variables involved? That's true, and, and one of the things that I like to include in any such seminars we're having here is do not throw money at wheels and tires when you encounter a vibration. You gotta sit back, think about what the vehicle is supposed to be doing, have a bunch of knowledge, and uh, you, can, you can figure it out. After all, the drive shaft's made out of metal, so is the car, we ought to be smarter than that. <laughs> That's true. Well, Brian, um, if you would kind of give us an idea, you know, and if we're talking to racers here and if we're talking to people who, and again, anything from their, their vehicle, whatever it might be, be it a race vehicle, we talk about rock crawlers and different things like that, to tow vehicles and everything else. What are some situations? What are some, uh, you know, things that come up that people should be aware of? Well, again, uh, Greg brought up a good point. You got to sit back and think what's going on. Uh, and we start at the, at the engine itself. And at that point of combustion, uh, you got a lot of force uh, uh, building up. And just to show just how much force, I can share my screen here for a minute. Oh. And uh, bear with me as I fumble through the, the computer here. 
So when you look at the pressure building up inside the cylinder, and there's a big difference between diesel, which we we're looking at here, and your, your big box Chevy, uh, the red line below, you know, we've seen cylinder trace, you know, uh, pressure in that cylinder build up over 17,000 PSI. That's a heck of a lot of force being applied to the crank. So that much force, the crank's gonna wanna twist a bit ahead of its natural rotation. Now the crank is just a, a big solid, it's a mass and it has weight and it has inertia. So when you twist it forward, it's gonna wanna spring back. And that's springing back and forth as you go into the firing order, that's gonna set up vibration. Now uncontrolled, that vibration is gonna hit your, your main bearings. Uh, it's gonna uh, throw off your timing. So that's where the damper comes into play. Um, it's, uh, you know, we don't talk about dampers like we do, you know, turbos or, or fancy wheels, and it's not a, a, a really hyped up uh, a product, but it is critical to the durability and uh, the longevity of the engine. So putting a good quality harmonic balancer on the engine, it's gonna help settle down that twisting and rebounding of the crankshaft. Um, that's gonna just help the engine run more efficiently stop that vibration from going into the, uh, you know, into the transmission and the driveline side as well, too. You know, that's fascinating. You know, it, it's, it's interesting when you talk about something like that, like, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking going, okay, you know, from the engine all the way back. But what you're saying is, you know, it, it also goes back the other way, back toward the engine. If you run into these vibrations, how it can impact everything along the way. Correct. You're correct. If you don't control it, it's just going to want to keep twisting and rebounding and the vibration is going to travel back and forth. And uh, uh, again, if I share my screen again real quick here, we can model it and see what it looks like. And you can see that whipping motion of the, the crank. There we go. So this, so here we have a, mo a model of the crankshaft and you can imagine the uh, combustion going on, that force hitting it and it's gonna wanna twist it up, rebound, twist and rebound. You can see where it lights up, where the stress points are on the crank. So again, we wanna smooth that out. And by, like I say, by doing so, we're just gonna add durability and smoothness to the engine. Wow, that's pretty fascinating, actually. Uh, you know, Aaron, when it comes to finding solutions, if someone is feeling the vibration, how, how do you isolate something like this? How do you say, hey, here's where the issue is, but then also here's where we fix it? So one of the things that you have to do in order to find the, the issue is you, you well, first you have to figure out what kind of vibration is present. Um, I'm going to share my screen now real quick to uh, show a um, to show a quick diagram of the different types of vibrations that you can see in the engine, because it's not always torsional, rotational vibration. There's also different kinds of vibration that you can see. Um, so if we, uh, we look at this slide here, so if we look at this slide here, it shows a, a quick diagram of different types of vibration. Um, Everyone's very familiar with an unbalanced vibration. That happens, uh, you know, one time every time the rotating assembly rotates, uh, and that tends to amplify with speed. 
and everyone's from, you know everyone's very familiar with how to treat an unbalanced condition and get a, a your balance back in order. That tends to be a lower frequency vibration because it only happens once every time it rotates. Uh, your torsional vibration, when things start to twist end to end, like the crankshaft model that Brian showed, um, that happens uh, usually related to the firing order. So on a four-stroke engine, it's half the number of cylinders that are firing. Um, and what that, sim what that simulation image showed, uh, showed a picture of the vibration with the crankshaft fixed at the flywheel end. But in reality, when you're out with your, you know, when you're out racing, that end isn't necessarily fixed. It's a little more stable. So the end, the end to end twist still happens. Uh, and when you get that end to end twist, a lot of times uh, road going vehicles, OEM vehicles have another vibration absorber at the end of the crankshaft. Uh, everyone's, I, I would imagine most racers are familiar with like a sprung, a spring pack in the end of the, in your clutch disc. And that's a torsional vibration control device. Uh, dual mass flywheels, which are more of an OEM solution and less of a race solution. Um, and then even torque converters, uh, different, different things like that, kind of decouple the driveline so you're not passing as much vibration into your, your transmission and into your drive shaft. But um, I mean, as, as you're familiar with a lot of racing applications, you know, you, you want to you deviate from, you know, let's say you're pushing more power, so you want to push a different style of clutch disc, or you're looking at, you know, uh, sometimes they'll go with a solid disc without the torsional spring pack in there, or you'll go with a multi-disc setup and you're adding and changing the weight at the end of it. You're also changing what vibration you're passing on from the engine further into your transmission, uh, which can cause gear rattle at discrete speeds uh, or even just accelerated gear wear. Uh, and you're passing that into your drive shaft too, which can also, um, it can also amplify some harmonics from the drive shaft movement too. Um, and that's, uh, you know, something that, you know, if you're passing stuff on from the engine, you know, you, you want to get a good quality damper on the crank nose to help keep the engine happy, to keep your bearings happy. And then you also want to look at what you're doing at the other end of the crankshaft. So if you're, if you're running a solid disc clutch, you're going to want to look at, you know, you're going to want to be spot on with uh, your drive shaft configuration. Uh, and you're also going to want to make sure you know, that everything else is in order. And you kind of have to plan for this stuff if you want to have a good, uh, solid package vibration-wise and durability-wise. Aaron, is it possible that, you know, all of a sudden this is the vibration I'm having now and we fix one thing, but now maybe it creates another type of vibration problem? Uh, yes, that, that happens quite often, actually. So uh, one of the things that was uh, one of the things that Greg actually mentioned is that you want to put the vibration in a place that the car can't necessarily reach it. And uh, a lot of times that's either below idle or below low RPM speeds uh, from a torsional vibration standpoint. Um, if anyone's familiar with like, you know, inline six vehicles, if you, some of the older stuff before dual mass flywheels, um, I had an old Dodge pickup. And one of the things that, you know, I've noticed when I was learning to drive on that um, you know, it's the, the old slant six, the leaning tower of power Mopar. Uh, if you loved it, you could actually make the whole truck bunny hop down the road because there wasn't a decoupling really well there. Um, you know, and where most modern stuff hasn't have dual mass flywheels like BMWs and stuff like that. So, you know, if, if you would put that below uh, idle and then you start lightening everything up, like let's say you go with a lightweight flywheel, um, you know, when you take mass out of the system, those vibrations will creep up at higher into the RPM range. 
So that, that's something where you might have a, a good solution when you start your build, but then when you start changing different things down the drive line and changing your masses, you may you might want to be prepared to have extra testing time to figure out what you need to get out the whole system to work together happily. Again, if you, uh, and thank you for that. If you have a question for any of the panelists, please feel free to type it into the chat. We'd love to uh, be able to talk about what you want to know about as well. You know, Greg, if I call Inland Empire Driveline Service and say, hey, this is what I have. This is where I'm going. I need a custom drive shaft. What do I need to know? What kind of information do you need to help me get what I need? We've got that boiled down to three dimensions. Uh, we need to know how far apart the two immovable objects are. That would be the pinion yoke and the output shaft of the transmission. We need to know how much spline is hanging out past the seal on the transmission. And uh, we need to know the, the breadth of the, between the tabs that center the universal joint in the pinion yoke. We got this all boiled down to a form and you check a box, X is this, Y is that, it's a whatever it is transmission. And then we're ready to go after we start getting questions answered about how much motor is this thing got? Uh, did you forget to tell us about the nitrous button? You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, which, which does beg the question, you know, application. I might have, you know, an engine with 650 horsepower, but if I'm going drag racing versus going, you know, you know, desert racing or something different like that, does that change what my application is going to be? Not just the power that I'm putting down, but the application which I'm using it. And not particularly, again, these things all obey the same physics. So, uh, you know, in the desert, you got rocks, they're going to bang into things on the drag strip, hopefully you don't. Um, but it's, it's more an issue of that X dimension between the two immovable objects. As that thing grows, uh, the diameter of the tube has to grow with it to bridge the, the distance. And uh, uh, when you're ready, I'll get into the mother nature part of this. And that's, that's where the length issue comes in. Diameter is strength and uh, the uh, wall thickness of the tubing is pretty much irrelevant. It's the diameter that provides the strength. And while I'm on the subject, we're not too scared of horsepower. It's torque that bothers us. And as long as you can break tires loose and make a whole lot of smoke and polish the track, we don't have a problem. But if you hook that baby up, now we need to talk. <laughs> you know, with, uh, with, with the company, with Inland uh, Empire Driveline Service, it's not just drive shafts, yokes, U-joints, uh, center support bearings, and all of that. Um, when I'm looking at something new with one, how far do I need to go with everything that I'm changing along the way in that as well? Uh, if you decide to put an overdrive transmission in where a direct drive was, we need to talk. Uh, if, um, you know, if you bolt, if you stick a chip in the computer, we you probably ought to be thinking about, gee, I just upped the horsepower by 200 and I still got this old junkyard drive shaft in here. Maybe I ought to think about that. So literally anytime any individual component gets modified, you have to remember that all these 
components are talking to each other. And this business about putting the conversation someplace where you don't go is really important because uh, again, you get into the mother nature's physics and, and under the wrong tube diameter and, and length situation, drive shaft will explode. It you know, looks like Elmer Fudd shotgun in the middle. And it's, it's, there's nothing else that makes a drive shaft look like that, except you've got too much RPM and not enough diameter. <laughs> I like the analogy right there. That's exactly uh, what it looks like. Yeah. Wow. Um, Brian, a question for you uh, from one of the panelists. Can you list the benefits of using a fluid damper harmonic balancer over OEM on a performance engine? Sure, sure. So the, the OEMs, uh, we talk about this being a, a system of weights and masses and under stock conditions, that OEM harmonic balancer is tuned for the stock conditions. Uh, two things are going to prematurely make it obsolete. One is if you start building up torque, you're going to overwork the stock elastomer damper, the rubber is going to crack and bulge and, and wear out. The second is if you start changing those masses in the rotating assembly, uh, lightweight pistons, uh, different connecting rods, uh, changing the mass of the, the flywheel or the flex plate. Now you're changing the resident frequency of that whole system. The stock damper is no longer in tune. So fluid damper solves that two ways. One, it's a viscous type damper, it's highly durable. Um, two, it works across a broad RPM range. So there's no tuning involved with it. Um, uh, beyond that, the fluid damper is SFI 18.1 spec for professional racing. Um, and we try to make it as easy as possible. It's all based on basically your make model and engine and uh, just a simple look up and hit the purchase button. Is there, is there a situation, let's just say, let's just for a number, I've got 650 horsepower, but now I'm, you know, I'm thinking about maybe down the road adding nitrous or doing this and I'm going to up it by two, 300 horsepower or whatever. Yeah, the beauty with uh, the, the beauty with the fluid amper is that the in, inner inertia ring is not bonded. The harder you make this work, the more it shears through that silicone, the more effective it becomes. So again, horsepower is not uh, not big of a concern. Um, we're very well known on the performance diesel side, where we're seeing upwards now of three thousand horse and equally about three thousand foot pounds of torque. So. Um, they say very highly durable. Uh, viscous dampers did originate and uh, really became popular in the uh, in the commercial industrial engines, and it was just down basically downscaled for for racing applications, and then uh, you know refined for high RPM use. Aaron, um, you know, it, it, as as Greg's describing what happens to the drive shaft and all of that too. Well, it, you know, now you've got that strong enough, and now you've added horsepower. Now you've done this. What kind of risk do you run in in you know blowing something else out along down the line? So uh, one of the biggest things that uh, you know that Greg mentioned is when you're, if you're changing the RPM uh, of your system. So let's say you know you're doing some work on your your valve train. Uh, and you're strengthening up your your valve springs so that way you can turn more RPM, changing your camshafts so that you're getting the you know the right cam profile to push more RPM. Um, if you, if you keep uh, pushing your RPM ceiling higher and higher, you run into a point where you might actually hit a different vibration resonance frequency. Um, so let's say uh, 
you know, the, the, the crankshaft has a certain resonance and a lot of times, you know, OE design tries to put it in between cranking speed and idle speed. Uh, and then you hit a second resonance uh, later on in the higher RPM range. It's an RPM that uh, nobody really sees in a stock application. But as Brian mentioned, you know, especially with performance diesel where they're pushing these engines more and more RPM, you know, they, they, they'll start like a high RPM, uh, they'll do a high RPM dump for pulling or if they're doing like dyno, you know, there's a multifaceted competition that a lot of the diesel guys do um, where they, they'll do like a dyno aspect of pulling and then a drag race. Uh, and if you're looking at all those different things, if they're pushing more and more RPM, they're, they're more advantageous for those different parts of the competition. Uh, and we've seen cases where a second resonance will come in. And a lot of times that second resonance is outside of the range of the rubber tuned uh, OEM dampers. And that's, and those particular ones are, they're really more of a tuned absorber. Uh, if you look at it from a textbook where they, they only work at a discrete frequency. So they'll start resonating um, kind of like, you know, if you play a certain pitch, you know, if you have like, you know, like the desk bells or like, a, you know, the water glass where you see the water glass start to go into resonance at a certain pitch. Well, that's how the rubber dampers work. But because the, the fluid damper isn't, isn't bonded, so that ring is, is free to move around at any frequency, you get more of a bell curve of effectiveness. So that way it can cover multiple resonances without having to change your damper. Uh, you touched on it a little bit earlier with like a nitrous situation too. So if you're increasing your power level without changing your hard components, your vibration peak isn't going to move around with, uh, with the viscous damper because the masses are all set. Um, you're not necessarily changing anything you know, between the two and you're not changing your resonant frequency. Uh, where with a rubber part, um, we see this a lot uh, from VibraTech when we do uh, marine retrofit applications. And we've done uh, marine retrofit applications for almost every generation of GM small block on an OEM level. Um, and if, you know, if you're familiar with marine, you're either idle or full throttle. When you set on full throttle all the time, the damper will tend to heat up on uh, the rubber ones. They can actually soften the rubber and shift uh, the peak further down into the RPM range. And then that's when things start to come apart. Or with the viscous damper, if it starts to heat up, your peak might you know, get a little bit higher or lower with temperature, but it doesn't shift around to different RPM ranges. So you still, are, you still know what to avoid with either different shift points, or you can tell the driver, you know, you run at this RPM for, you know, this amount of time during, the, you know, like if they're on a long straight track, you know, you can really wind it out and get through it and just have them push right through that RPM or different things. All right, we have another question from chat. I don't know if this is uh, for Aaron or for Greg or maybe Brian, but it says, uh, how can you deal with an engine TVD if it doesn't have a crankshaft nose to fit one onto? Okay, uh, we've done some, we've done a lot of work with, um, uh, with OEMs that have uh, dampers built into it that are more of an internal component. So um, a lot of times, uh, you know, if the, if the damper is an internal component, uh, there there might there's still some sort of a mounting flange inside of the engine, um, and we've done a lot of work on those. With uh, those are typically actually are pretty high RPM applications. Um, like we're looking at you know ten thousand plus RPM. Um, and usually there's mounting provisions either inside of it or you have to come up with a special cover 
uh, in order to expand it. But then once it's run in an internal part, you can downsize the damper a little bit and use the engine's oiling system to cool it as well. Oh, interesting. Um, Brian, I think this is probably for you regarding the fluid damper. Does that silicone fluid break down or have its viscosity or shear characteristics change over time? Well, one of the beauties about using silicone is that its shear properties remain pretty consistent from about minus 40 degrees to 300 degrees. So in there, it gives you a nice consistent uh, shear effect. Um, now, as far as breaking down, and the heavy duty viscous dampers we see in like class A trucks, uh, big gen set, um, those that are under um, heavy torque, constant use, typically about 15,000 hours to or 500,000 miles, the silicone will start uh, going uh, like a polymerization process where it will start breaking down. So we do say in the heavy duty side, um, and this may apply to those out there with uh, tractor trailer tow rigs, or if, um, um, if you're using your, your light duty truck uh, as a tow rig, you're getting up there half a million to a million miles on it, a good idea to, uh, yeah, to replace the viscous damper in that situation. And uh, street and track and racing, uh, it's good for the life of the engine. Okay. Um, Greg, if, if we could take it back to you here for a second, and, and let's start talking about angles um, and the maximum angle a cross and bearing joint can take. The uh, smooth power that uh, fluid dampener has created for us coming out of the back end of the transmission is, as they have stated, not smooth. There are firing impulses coming from the engine and they kick that crankshaft as they have described. So, but for simplicity's sake, if we assume that uh, we got nice smooth round power coming out of the back of that engine, it hits an angle, get this up high enough so you can see it. When it hits a U-joint angle, the joint has to speed up and slow down twice per revolution. So now this thing is pulsating power and the whole drive shaft is pulsating and you have an equal opposite angle on the back end at the transmission or at the rear end to take that pulsating power and turn it into smooth for the uh, rear end. Typically three degrees break through the U-joint is about all you wanna have to live with because you can feel it if it's more than that. Uh, and as the RPM increase, the angle that those parts will successfully turn through goes down along with the life of the U-joint. But the thing to take away from that joint angle deal is that the drive shaft is always pulsating. This is true of any uh, cardan style cross and bearing sort of U-joint. Okay, Aaron, I saw you kind of shaking your head just a little bit as Greg was describing that. Did you want to add to that at all? We actually have a machine in our, uh, in our engineering development area that we use for accelerated durability. And it has a you know, cross style single U-joint uh, it's got a central shaft for the flywheel and it's got U-joints and then it has flanges on both ends on a secondary shaft. And, um, you know, we can crank up the angle on that machine. Um, we can do, you know, we typically run it about a 20 degree angle and you can actually watch the face of the damper slow down and speed up the two times per revolution at low speeds. Uh, and we use that, uh, we, it only runs about as fast about 1200 RPM. 
because you know, beyond that, it'll start shaking and walking around the shop. Um, but it, it, you can see a lot of, you know, you can see a lot of speed variation in just that little bit of RPM. And you know, when you change the joint angle like that. Wow. Well, one, one thing that he touched on is if you have angle at one end and no angle at the other, uh, then you're not getting rid of that pulsating power. We know for sure that you cannot exceed six degrees at the transmission end and have zero at the pinion end and expect it to work because one of our customers did it and made it 300 miles down the road before the pinion welded itself to the ring gear. So the forces we're talking about here are enormous. And uh, by the, that's the worst case, but typically uh, people can feel when uh, these inertial vibrations are not happy. And if you don't do something about it, you're gonna destroy something way more expensive than the drive shaft. So are you saying if you have angle on one end, then you have to have angle on the other end as well? That's the equal or how does that work? Yeah, that's exactly how it works. If you have an engine sitting in a frame at three degrees down, which is a world standard, and you have a drive shaft, get this up here. If this is three down, the shaft is level, you want three up on the pinion so that this angle here completely cancels this angle. And the pinion works both sides of perfect. Now the drag racers are gonna say that's not true. You wanna have the pinion down because it's gonna wrap up and it does. But most people drive their cars at you know, some position other than pedal to the metal. So we're talking here about uh, driving it on the street and being comfortable. But yes, these angles need to be almost exactly canceling each other because this green thing is speeding up and slowing down twice per revolution. And you got to get that pulsation out before it goes into the rear end. This is why uh, axles break. Wow. Well, while we're talking about that, then how much uncanceled angle can a drive shaft take? Uh, the drive shaft, uh, Spicer says that uh, you can uh, live with a degree of uncanceled angle. And that's pretty much, you know, working both sides of perfect at the back end. And, you know, you can do anything you want as long as it stays in the vehicle and you can put up with the vibration. But, uh, Again, if you're going to hop in your car and you're sitting in Ohio and want to drive to LA, uh, you don't want to be thinking about how you've got a drive shaft in the car. You want to forget it. And is it fair to say, like with suspension travel and things like that, as the suspension moves, so does the angle on both ends? The angle at the rear end moves more because you've got, you know, we all remember our high school trigonometry, right? So if you have this going on at the rear end, you see it doesn't move much up at the front. The only time this becomes a huge issue is there's always an offset in the plan view because the pinion runs off center. And so if you're building a Cobra or a Bucket T or something, a drive shaft's a foot long, now all of a sudden you can get huge angles in the plan view and you gotta do something about that or buy one of those trailer things. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, back to the chat. And again, if you have a question, just type it into the chat and uh, we'll absolutely do our best to get to every one of them that we can. Uh, Brian, I don't know if this one may be more for you or not. Um, what do you think of pendulum absorbing uh, pendulum absorber dampers as fitted into flywheels? Well, that's an, that's an excellent question. Um, I always want to kick bunt that over to Aaron, thinking as a total package, because now we're going to add the, the pendulums are there to help cancel out the vibration. They're putting it on the back end of the flywheel. Um, I mean, you're still going to get some twist up in the front at the snow. Um, but uh, Aaron, you want to chime in and how effective you think that may be? Sure. So the big reason for the, the pendulum damper is they work uh, very well uh, when the order counts. Um, so when I say order, I mean number of vibration pulses per revolution. So like the drive shaft is the second order, um, firing on a V8 is the fourth order. So if you have your, your pendulum count multiples of the vibration for the firing, they're gonna do a good amount of work uh, to reduce that vibration because uh, when the firing pulse comes through, if the number of, of pulses is equal to or an or a multiple of the number of pendulums in the pendulum damper, it'll cause those to, uh, to rock back and forth uh, in the pendulum action. And they're used a lot on like uh, aircraft engines. I believe uh, Lycoming is one that uses them quite a bit and they're actually built right into uh, the crankshaft throws. And they work really well for discrete RPMs. Um, and the pendulum damper is used a lot on the back end of the crankshaft, uh, either built into a flywheel or built into a torque converter uh, to cancel out uh, what's left from the crankshaft twist um, before sending it downstream to the transmission and the drive shaft. All right. Um, another question. Are there any vibration issues that any of you encounter that are more specific to compound boost vehicles? Any general cautions? For compound boost applications? So uh, the compound boost, mainly what that does is that'll change the look of that cylinder pressure peak that Brian shared earlier in the presentation. Uh, instead of having a nice smooth solid peak at a certain uh, angular event in the firing, uh, you know, because it fires two rotations, so 720 degrees. So a lot of modern engines have timing wheels so that way your engine management knows exactly where your crankshaft is in the rotation. Uh, so it can time the fueling with the cylinder pressure, uh, you know, when the compression comes on. And so you can get your, your ignition at the right spot. Well, with your compound boost, um, you know, when you're, when you're running those, you're changing a little bit the profile of um, that firing peak. And that can also have a little bit of an effect of uh, not necessarily how the crankshaft rings out, but the way that you strike the crankshaft. Um, so that, that, that has a lot to do with uh, the input power into the vibration damper that causes it to heat up. Um, and the, the viscous damper is pretty forgiving with that. Uh, they'll, they'll reach a uh, stabilization temperature really pretty quickly when it's in operation. Um, they don't tend to really suffer much from heat, heat soak uh, because they're designed like a radiator. So you have a certain amount of power input that it can handle just by the design of the damper. Where like the, the rubber parts, if you heat them up too much, that rubber properties will change and then the vibration starts moving around and you can actually get a, a worse vibration settling into an RPM that had no vibration before. 
How about four-wheel drive applications? How does that change the game and things that I need to know? Don't go more than four inches on the lift or buy U-joints by the case. <laughs> That's about all there is to it. Because you create these huge angles that we talked about earlier, and huge is like more than five, uh, and then drive it down the highway, it, you just take the life out of the joint and nothing flat. I'm mm -hmm. sure the people that build lift kits are real thrilled to hear me say that, but you know, again, you know, any confrontation between uh, artistic stance and mother nature's physics is going to get won by the physics. Every time I would imagine. Or here, <laughs> here where I am in North Carolina, where people want to take their four wheel drives and squat them, I would imagine that uh, that really changes the game. Well, some of what they're doing there is, you know, you anything you do to make the rear shaft happy so you can drive down the road makes the front shaft worse. You know, something that's pretty hard to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they actually changed the law here recently to uh, give a maximum angle that you can or cannot have, if you will. Um, I just think the aesthetics um, are, are justification for law enough, but anyway. <laughs> you can get the same thing for all the gravel. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, let's see. I want to make sure I get to these. Uh, all right. Here. Uh, many people might uh, benefit from some discussion of U-joint phasing, especially, uh, especially with multiple section drive shafts. I don't know who the best one is to take that, Greg, uh, Aaron. Well, I suppose it's my sentence. Uh, typically on a one or two joint shaft, the ears on each end of the shaft are squared up with each other, and that's phasing. To the best of my knowledge, there have been two vehicles that came misphased from the factory. One of them was a Camaro, four speed with a four barrel back when. The other one was a 50 or 63 to, wait a minute, 58 to 63 Chevys. They had all kinds of trouble with vibration and tried to correct it by 90 out in the middle. But essentially, if you look at it from the standpoint of what's a common rule of thumb, just line all of those uh, yokes up so that they're square. Uh, if you're uh, say in the drag racing business or you wanna keep an eye on your aluminum or carbon shafts to make sure they're not starting to yield, uh, you just put a couple coat hangers or welding rods on those ears and look down them. As long as they're square with each other, life is good. When they start to drift, get it out of there. Interesting. Aaron, did you want to follow up on that or, or Brian? That was just uh, another thing too, is, uh, you know, touching on what Greg mentioned, you know, if you take a nice, if you got a nice bright aluminum drive shaft, if you take a straight edge and actually just draw, you know, draw like a paint line down it, that line starts to move then you know you're getting some yielding too okay doesn't happen much but you know it's there's no such thing as too much attention right and it's a quick way to inspect it at the track too without having to oh, use too many tools mm, that makes sense uh, how do you decide what mirror uh, how do you decide what material to use for a drive shaft aluminum steel carbon fiber what goes into that decision again it's it's become much clearer over the last decade. Uh, aluminum drive shafts exist primarily because of overdrive automatic transmissions. 
they uh, increase the torque demand because you know you got a 0.7 overdrive and your horsepower state requirement stays the same but torque goes up so uh, the frequencies being fed into the drive shaft that cause it to react uh, will migrate back into the transmission in the rear end. This is the conversation that these parts are having all the time. And the less mass you have speeding up and slowing down twice per rev under that car, the happier the overdrive clutch pack is. So it's an investment in longevity for the transmissions. And I hear from the guys at Tremec that they like to have the joint angles below three because as was mentioned earlier at some speeds you can get the gears rattling in a transmission and they don't like having some customer tell them their transmission sounds like a box of rocks so they the the less angle there is and the less mass there is behind any overdrive is a reason to go to aluminum you go to carbon for totally different reasons. Uh, they are excellent at getting rid of harmonic issues. Uh, they live in hostile environments. Uh, they uh, they've got a place, as I mentioned in the in that one of the Camaros. I think it's a Gen three or four. I can never keep them straight. They got a built-in resonance from the factory. We can chase that to 120 miles an hour, and after that, if you want to go faster. It's carbon shaft time. Okay, um, it, it's it's interesting in talking about all of these things, and you know when we start to talk about very specific applications, you know, do you ever get rid of all the vibration, or do you say, "Here's where I'm going to live in this car"? If it's a dragster, you know, you're going full on, or if I'm doing this at this RPM mostly, is it where I need to solve my problem in this range where the vehicle is mostly going to travel? That's it, the last one. Uh, these forces and all this activity is going on 100% of the time under your seat. And you wanna put these dangerous places like critical speed and half critical into some area where you just don't go. Okay. You know, Brian, you mentioned earlier, you talked about, you know, diesel and different things um, and torsional vibration. Does it differ between different engine configurations, V8, inline six, gas, diesel? How does that change? Well, uh, it, it does. And uh, earlier when I brought up the slide, it shows just the difference between a performance diesel application and just a big black Chevy. You were at uh, 17,000 PSI on the diesel and about 1,100 PSI on the, um, the big black Chevy. Um, so the combustion forces within diesel are just greater. That's why diesel engines are a bit more robustly to handle it. Uh, but in different configurations, it, it is true. Um, you know, with, with a V8, um, the crankshaft can be longer than a, than a V6. So you just have more mass, you have uh, more firing orders. And then if you take that down to the inline fours, um, now you've got two more cylinders and uh, you have different dynamics of, of uh, vibration. So. Uh, when we talk about dampers, um, yeah, the fluid damper is a broad range damper. Uh, it's very forgiving, but it is designed for the application that it's going on. So you can't run an inline four damper on a, on a V8. How does it work? How does a fluid damper work? I know you showed us a neat little cutaway and all of that, but what are the mechanics there? Right. Uh, I'll pull that 
up again here. We can all see it. So we have the outer housing. We have an inner inertia ring. It's maybe difficult to see, but there's a little tiny shear gap between the ring. There's a business card between the ring and the. All right, oh, I see my camera angle just cut out here. Now we go, there we go, get the angle. And that card just barely fits in here. So you can see that shear gap in there that is not much space at all. Uh, there is more provisions for silicone in here. So the, the damper has uh, silicone pressure injected through the, the fill holes, fills up that gap there. And it's the rate of shear that this inner inertia ring is moving through the silicone. So it uh, turns that vibration into heat and then radiates out the, the outer housing. Okay, it, it's fascinating the technology and the way all of that works. Uh, Greg, I wanna ask you, we keep talking about things and cars going fast and all of that. What's the fastest one of your drive shafts has gone? Uh, customers don't give us that feedback very much. But we uh, we do know that that orange dragster up there did 286 in the quarter, and we have another customer that also ran 286 out at Ponteville. So we know for sure this stuff works well up to 286, but beyond that, nobody has reported yet. Well, the interesting thing there though is 286 at the end of the quarter mile is one thing, but 286 going down Bonneville, what is that? At? Like a one or two four mile run? Mile run. So the, the difference in, in actually doing that, like hitting that peak versus sustaining that peak. Yeah, that's why we got to talk. <laughs> <laughs> what works on the drag strip does not necessarily work on the lakes, does not necessarily work on a circle track. And none of them work on the street real well. So it, you set the car up for what it's going to do. Aaron, you want to elaborate on that some too? So uh, just touching on a little bit about like, you know, the speed parts of it too. And, uh, you know, not necessarily top end speed, but, you know, engine RPM, um, you know, one of the big misconceptions about fluid amper is people talk about how they don't work beyond uh, a certain RPM threshold. And we're actually, you know, we were on an OEM level, we designed and created and manufactured dampers for engines that out of the box, set, you know, reach an 11,000 RPM peak. Uh, not just a crankshaft damper, but they also have camshaft dampers because their cams go into a uh, resonance because they push so much RPM. Um, then also one that's, I believe, 12,000 RPM as well. Uh, that, that one's actually just coming into production pretty soon there. Um, so, I mean, some of the fastest revving engines in the world, like the Lexus LFA, use viscous damper technology. Um, you know, Formula One engines have their dampers on them. They're just internal components, so you really can't see them when you look at it from the outside. Uh, so, I mean, realistically, like like Greg mentioned, we have you have to have a conversation about what you're going to design your your engine to. Uh, what are your RPMs that you're looking to run? Um, you know, do you have any critical speeds that you notice right now? Uh, how much of the rotating assembly are you going to change as you build it? Uh, you mentioned nitrous, you're going to add that later on, what kind of turbo setups. All of these are very important to get everything to start, you know, like Greg mentioned, all these components start talking to each other. And the best thing you want to do is, uh, you know, inform the, the suppliers that you're working with of as clear of a picture as you can give them. 
So that way we can give you guys the best solution available that'll help your whole car uh, communicate well. All right, let's say I'm just, you know, full on geek for all of this and I'm ready to do a deep dive in whatever build or whatever thing I'm working on. Is there an order, you know, should, it, it, Greg, if I just go to you first, you know, are you going to help me with what Brian offers with fluid damper or, you know, maybe consulting with Aaron? Is there a way that I need to go and approach this? Um, we, uh, I, I now know more about vibration dampening on engines than I did an hour ago, and I knew nothing then. Uh, when we built our uh, street rod, I was, I've been at this for 40 years, and I was shocked to find out you can't decide anything until you know what the tires are going to be. Can't pick out your rear end gear ratio. You got no idea about what to do with the drive shaft, obviously. So we want to be last, and typically are. Everything's got to be bolted in the car where it's going to stay. You don't want to be doing this twice because you changed your mind. And, uh, and then we have these conversations, okay, what did you build? I think the most useful piece of advice I could offer anybody listening to this would be to sit down with a piece of paper and, and think about what you're going to build and what you're going to do with it when it's finished, and then build a car that way and be very, very careful about people trying to influence you about saying that's stupid, why don't you do this instead? Because now you gotta go back and redesign the whole powertrain. Mm. Brian, how about you, you know, uh, trying to figure out exactly what product I might need for you or how your solution can help me in what I'm doing? Right, and again, sitting down and thinking about what you wanna do and also what your future plans are. The stock OEM damper in general, it's good for adding an air kit and exhaust, maybe a, a tune. You go beyond that and you start with your big power adders, your, your turbos, superchargers, for sure. You're gonna wanna upgrade the, the damper then. Uh, and then if you touch anything mass-wise within the rotating assembly, yeah, you're gonna wanna switch over to a, to a fluid damper for that broad range damping ability. Okay, and, and uh, Aaron, you know, as far as what you have going on with Vibrotech TVD, mm -hmm. you know, how, how can you help? So uh, one of the biggest things, another thing that, you know, we touch on too is planning on having space for a damper. Um, you know, a lot of times if you're building, you've got an engine builder, especially on like, if you get into like top, the top level racing, you know, you have a, a separate team that builds the engine and the powertrain. You have a separate team that builds the race car chassis. Uh, so if you're getting, if you're getting to that point there, um, it, what you want to do maybe early on when you're getting, if you're getting into an, uh, your engine build, um, maybe have a quick call or discussion, you know, with, with the guys in our sales department, uh, or, you know, just figure out, you know, what you need for, on the end of the crankshaft, because the engine actually will perform better with a little bit of, little bit of weight on the end of the crankshaft, you know, for the damper to do its work, it needs a little bit of weight to work. And that requires a little bit of size. Um, and we can get pretty creative with uh, the size of the damper. You know, we do an inline six one that's about eight and a half inch diameter, but it's only about three eighths of an inch thick. So it's not adding a lot of weight, but we're adding a lot of uh, vibration control potential. So if we have an idea of, like Brian said, what are your plans? What are you looking to do? Powertrain configuration. You want to plan for the weight that's going to be, uh, you want to plan for, you know, having a little bit of weight from the damper and then plan on having the size that you need. And also, um, if you need drive configurations, like let's say you have a dry sump oiling system, you want to plan that. 
uh, maybe a little bit of an idea of your timing drive too. So if you're going with like a gear driven timing, you might end up be, you might want a little more damper because if you're running it off the front of the crankshaft, it's going to transmit everything from the front of the crank nose directly into your valve train. So you, we want to get a kind of an idea of exactly how everything's going to start working together. Um, and also if you have, you know, you're going to go a solid hub, you know, a solid clutch disc on the back end, or if you're going light on your flywheel, you want to make sure we build in enough damper and have space for it. Okay. Um, Greg, let's squeeze in one more quick question from the chat before we wrap up here. Can you advise a nifty way of deciding how much end float nip you should have on hook joint caps? Too much burns them up and too little allows tube float off center. Not sure I understand the jargon, but <clears throat> if I do, it means how much end play can there be in the U-joint and it should be less than a thousand. Greasable type U-joints we've found brand new in the box with as much as 15 and 20 thousandths end play. And as regards to how tight you can make the bearing portion of it, that leads me to my U-bolt thing. Everybody over tightens U-bolts. And that's why the rear joint burns up first and it always does it on the pinion side. Proper joint or U-bolt torque has come down evenly until the lock washer just flattens out and give them an eighth of a turn and you're all done. That will solve 80% of the vibrations we run into. <laughs> it's amazing how much how much over tightening can cause a lot of problems in anything that you're doing. Um, gentlemen, uh, Greg, Brian, Aaron, thank you so much. This has really been a fascinating hour, and I think we could probably do two or three more and still continue to learn a lot of <laughs> yes, things. Yes, we but can. I enjoyed it. There's no uh, end to it. There's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks I, for I, having I, us. Thank, thank you for having us on. Thank you very much. I, I think we'll invite you back, right, Judy? I think uh, yeah. uh, we'll... Uh, We'll find a way to do a part two, uh, maybe, uh, of this. And uh, thank you very much for sharing so much knowledge, so much expertise. Uh, and uh, Brad, thank you very much. So we will be back next Wednesday at 9 o'clock Pacific again. We're going to be talking coatings with early convulsors. This webinar has been recorded. It will be posted on the ePortrait platform in a couple hours, as well as on our YouTube uh, channel. Thank you very much for being with us today. We have pushed uh, In an Empire and Free Dampers product back to the homepage of ePortrait. So as Judy mentioned to you many, 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 many times, we're live every week, once uh, uh, on Wednesday for an hour, but the platform, the ePortrait.com is open 24 seven, 365 for all of you within the industry to go on, connect, engage, and uh, please take advantage of it. We build this platform for you, for the industry. We love so much. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll see you guys again next uh, Wednesday. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Registering on ePartrade is easy. Fill out your name, email, phone number and create a secure password. Next, select your business type. Choose supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose racing business if you're looking to find new parts and connect with suppliers. 
Choose race team if you own or are a member of a professional racing team. Begin typing your company name. We most likely already have your company in our database, which you can select from the drop-down. Then, enter your job title. Choose Claim Company if you'll be editing your company profile. Other members of your company can choose Join Company if they'd like to use ePartrade as well. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Click Register Now and your registration will be submitted for approval. You'll need to confirm your email once it goes through. To keep our platform industry only, you'll be approved shortly after. If we require additional proof of business, we'll reach out. Welcome to ePartrade.